0: Fourth Amendment in the Bill of Rights says unfair searches and seizures are wrong. There must be than oh, showing probable cause, telling the place and the persons. Fire, guys.
1: Welcome to the next awesome exciting episode of the next report podcast woo Unix and Everlook pop culture and it looks like Mitchell is coming down with a uh, bit of a cold
0: something like that yeah before I might as well say before we get into the topic if we like why does Mitchell's voice sound like that <laughs> Well my throat and nose are congested, and I next to never get sick so this is this is rather uncomfortable. I would say I'm under the weather but it's only the 2nd of September and it's sunny and warm outside so <laughs> m- m- take that how you will.
1: That's alright, I've had my I've had like both ears basically clogged, and it's like it's like I might as well be in you know, California on the nicest
2: day of the year or so.
1: But um, that was Mitchell, and Thomas
2: and I'm Zach Dothan
1: and this is kind of Kind of a sentimental thing for me, because this uh, will be the last episode that's going to be recorded using PC Linux OS. After the,
0: what, are, what are you switching to? Uh, something called Netrunner. It's already running <coughs> on
1: two of the systems. You look at the release; they call it as Enigma, and the wallpaper is just absolutely beautiful. Uh, you should take a look at take a look at it. It's kind of like has this glowing eye and everything.
0: It reminds me definitely of. Uh, that uh, looks cool. It looks like a. When I see that, I think like Pink Floyd or an al. If that was an album cover. That's one somebody would have used in the '70s to roll joints on. That's <laughs> what I think when I look at that wallpaper. <laughs> but
1: um. Anyway, it looks great so far. But and also, the next report issue number five is out. Huzzah! Well, so.
0: I liked it. It was well written. So I, I like the the since you are somebody who's ran for Congress on a, a third party ticket. I like seeing the behind the scenes angle and the story about Herschel Young because whenever I interviewed you and Randy and i was talking about okay, you at that time you you know, basically defeated your opposition for for in the in the primary which would be him, you know asking randy more information about him or how randy didn't like him as wanting him to win as, as being the you know front man of the party and randy just said he's not a nice guy or something like that and then just looking at the exchange between you and him and the, the written exchange he, he, tim- he messaged
1: my candidate fan page in- all caps yeah. <laughs> if that tells you anything and it's just like, May God forgive you for your yeah, sins and yeah. I'm like And you're like, Oh boy Um so yeah that that was that was that was kind of a fun retrospective volunteering at the state fair and seeing that little sign Herschel Young two thousand fourteen you know donated by libertarians for good candidates. I'm like this uh, one of the people who was also there was like, is
2: that an actual registered group in Missouri? (laughs) Yeah, their sister group, uh, uh, Libertarians for Bad Candidates. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man.
1: But um, one of the things that I did campaign on was foreign policy to an extent, major civil liberties, because that was one of the things I felt should have been focused on, which brings us to the topic for this episode is something that involves civil liberties on a couple of fronts. Um, It's something we've been meaning to get to for a while, but just, you know, other news kept happening, and then finally, um, relevant stuff came up, and here we are, um, talking about something that kind of affects foreign policy and civil liberties all at the same time. We're talking about Manning and Snowden today. Um, and the NSA are, in general. As well as, you know, as well as WikiLeaks and what have you. And for for starters, let's take a look at
2: the person who was born
1: Bradley Manning, who's now wanting to be known as Chelsea Manning.
2: Um, yeah, uh, for all of you that that haven't been following the story, um, Chelsea Manning elected, um, to begin the transitioning process, um, after her sentencing hearing, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, she was sentenced to 35 years? Correct. Yeah, 35 years with parole? I think it might be without parole, I'm not sure, I think based on, like, the extent of of the leaking of information. I think parole, that she...
0: parole is eligible, because I think I, I oh, okay. saw something on RT last night where they were discussing it, like saying, well, because he's, he's a young man, female person, whatever she or he wishes to be known by, the, the chance in which they could be get out, they would still be a young person, relatively young. Oh, okay.
2: So, so 35 years the chance of parole. Uh, for all of you who, uh, it seems like this story has all, uh, gathered... Uh, national salience on multiple levels the the issue with civil liberties um, the issue with what is an acceptable form of leaking information uh, how much you can leak to information what opposes to a national uh, the national security of a nation and ultimately, whether what um, in leaking that information is it beneficial to the American public to know this type of information about its government? can people effectively um, use this information to contest the authority of um, the government and also the legitimacy of its domestic international policies. Um, Bradley Manning certainly isn't the first. Uh, I should say now Chelsea Manning. I keep I keep having to correct myself. But Chelsea Manning wasn't the first person that exposed the federal government on, um, on this type of magnitude. I mean, whistleblowers date back to almost since the, uh, even before the United States. You could consider
0: consider Woodward and Bernstein whistleblowers, and so look at how they are revered. Many people, when they speak about journalism uh, and the the power uh, of the press, they cite... Woodward and Bernstein is playing a critical role in the downfall and resignation of a president, Richard Nixon.
2: And what I think is particularly problematic about this instance is that because Chelsea Manning was a soldier, because she had sworn an oath to the uh, to her nation to defend it from all enemies foreign and domestic, and then the pop- popular mantra is that she turned her back on her own nation and revealed information about her government mm-hmm. that... Put her government in a bad light but you know woodward you know exposed um uh exposed the 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 problems in richard nixon right yeah um because you know they they found watergate and because there's all richard nixon was also not a very popular president in the second term anyway um you know, Much of it
0: related to Vietnam.
2: Yeah. Uh, suddenly, there's this really weird juxtaposition between, you know, swearing an oath to your nation and um, ultimately what your actions do right. for that nation. Woodward
0: and Bernstein are not
2: employees of the government. Right. Um, the the Chelsea Manning issue now, uh, <coughs> like I've already mentioned, has kind of exposed multiple levels of debate. We have the civil uh, civil liberties issue, we have the national security issue, and then we also have um, LGBT rights in the United States. Uh, we probably will not address LGBT rights in this episode because we have, could be yeah, episode. we have quite a bit to get to with this episode. That's an episode in and of itself, mm-hmm. um, but as of right now, because of the information that was leaked by Chelsea Manning, she's serving 35 years, the possibility of parole now, originally, they were trying to sentence Justin main to life in prison, if yeah. I remember correctly. And then they backed off on some of the charges, um, or the severity of the charges. Um, uh, but now we're having additional questions about Snowden and about other whistleblowers um, that most of them are United States citizens, exposing what the United States federal government has done um, vis-a-vis NSA or it's foreign policy. I know uh, Julian Assange um, exposed a lot of the diplomatic cables between countries, and he had these alliances that everybody thought were just kind of taken as self-evident, and now other countries are speaking very, very illly of their own allies. And it's creating a lot of diplomatic crises in the international community.
1: And for those who um, don't recall... Uh, specifically the information that came from Manning, uh, specifically in the July 12, 2007, Baghdad back- airstrike, the Brenei airstrike, and I believe the information I'm looking at is correct. Um, diplomatic cables, for what it's worth. Quite a bit of information just released. And I am pulling from Wikipedia, so kind of sort of check the links all the way at the bottom always, because that's... Wikipedia pages tend to get vandalized when you least expect it.
0: Take it with a grain of salt. I always look at Wikipedia as a starting point, not not an end. Certainly. Um,
1: And everything else, I remembered remembered seeing... I can't remember which... which, uh, domain it was on at the time, but I remember seeing a certain website with a certain video involving a helicopter strike
0: where unarmed civilians were killed. What? That doesn't happen. The U.S. government does not do that type of thing. (laughs) That's the thing that other governments do. The U.S. government does not do that.
1: And, And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is from WikiLeaks. That's the same website where uh, certain documents from the Church of Scientology was released, and I'm like, "Oh, this this is getting interesting," and and everything else. I I'm just like, "Wow, this is this is going to get interesting," and it it certainly did with you know the emergence into the limelight of Julian Assange and how he seems more like a front. Man, for the organization, how? Because, just just the look of his face, the way he talks, it's just. It's, what about the what about the look of his face? Like, or just the way he carries himself, it's it seems more like he's just a a face. You know how everybody every, He's just
2: he's a stand-in for a, a global network of of uh, people who are trying to make. The pot of the international community, cognizant of what's actually happening. Uh, he he is the face of a global movement to contest the authority and legitimacy of governments and just giving them carte blanche authority to do right. their work.
1: Um, and Assange is still holed up in a building. Um, the Ecuadorian is embassy in London,
0: it's still there. No. No. You gotta think. As, as the Ecuador, the Ecuadorian government or the the embassy, was it? Have they granted him permanent asylum? Uh, because if it, the minute he steps out out there, he uh, he is uh, subject to arrest, right? Right. Yeah. I if I was in his shoes, I wouldn't leave. It's like, do you have Netflix? Can we order Chinese food here? <laughs> okay, I'm
2: gonna live here. <laughs> I think I think what all this event uh, all these events beg in terms of question asking is do people have the right to know this information even at the expense of what the government is doing to either protect the information or alternatively what the government is just doing period um, that's a very difficult question to ask because ultimately it gets back to what's the role of the state and ultimately what's the role of the journalist and being able to make sure that freedom of speech is maintained mm-hmm. and making sure that people are at least aware of what their tax dollars are going to. Um, now, the the airstrike that you're referencing, Thomas, I think the reason why it got so much national uproar on it is because it wasn't at least immediately readily known whether that airstrike was authorized and whether this person was acting on behalf of orders he was receiving from his commanding officers. Um, and so, ultimately, you know, people kind of extrapolated that he was ordered to just kill the civilians that were on the ground irrespective of whether they were terrorists or not. And you you have basically the most inhumane footage of the Iraq War being known and seen by the public.
0: Which I think that... That brings another interesting point because during the the Bush administration, wasn't there some type of legislation passed where you could not show coffins returning? Uh, are you talking about George Herbert Walker or George Walker? W. Okay. Yeah.
2: Um, I think when we uh, when Iraq commenced, that there was some um. There's, there is there the regulations regarding what you can show on the media can very I mean the the noose around them just kind of squeeze tighter sure
0: legis- It's and what that has a what that has the ability to do is to sanitize war. Because something as simple as you cannot show flag draped coffins coming back I think whether it's most a lot of people who watch that, like mothers are gonna might place themselves <coughs> sort of a, a sense of empathy. And um, it, during the Bush administration, embedded correspondence. Right.
2: You know, so I
0: think with, with something like um, with the, hel- with the helicopter footage, with that point, is to get the real, you know, in the sort of gritty footage of what's going on, and for it to be known, in some cases, it has to go outside of the formal yeah. channels. And I could understand why I would say our government or the powers that be might take issue with that. Because in, in Vietnam, journalists and the news media played a role that at the time was completely unique. You had journalists who were sort of in the bush with the soldiers, and on the nightly news, you saw the horror of war. You didn't have that in World War II. You had a newsreel spinning an official line at, at the movie theater. And, and one of the factors leading to uh, sort of uh, an, an anti-Vietnam sentiment was that nightly news footage. Right, and you, you know, you talk,
2: you've already talked about the, the sanitization of the Iraq and Afghanistan war. I think what you had were two kind of unique phenomena that happened was either the, the, the hyper-visibility of war, that every single um, death was made a national story for the night, and then on other news channels, um, a couple of years after the Afghanistan and Iraq wars commenced, you just had nothing, and it stops it stops the public from being able to art- to accurately articulate what are the ramifications of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it stops us from being able to at least conceptualize. What is occurring in these countries, and it's us prosecuting the war on terror. Thousands of of Iraq and Afghanistan civilians dying. There are thousands of uh, U.S. military personnel dying, and we don't see it. So we just kind of gloss over the details of war. And I think it, I think on a psychological level, it's extremely problematic. I mean, we sanitize if we sanitize war, if we just sanitize violence. Then suddenly the deaths don't mean anything. They're just Numbers on the nightly Another, another cycle.
0: facet leading to that, if you were to compare sort of the, a bridge between, you know, leading to where we're at now, you, you look at the news coverage of, of Vietnam, you get the, the sort of horror and sort of grittiness to it. You look at CNN's coverage of the Gulf War in the early 90s, it, 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 it views and plays like a video game. Right, I mean, it reminds me,
2: it reminds me, again, of the, of the old type of footage that was shown uh, of World War II, where, you know, the boys are, the boys are out overseas fighting a good fight for and the American public. they
0: always have that annoying announcer with the nasally type of vocal. Right, and,
2: and they're, look at them, uh, you know, lead the charge up the hill, and, and taking the last bastion of uh, uh, enemy resistance, and look at them being very victorious. Um, And then with, you know, Vietnam, which was already an unpopular war when it first commenced anyway, you know, now you have the the grittiness associated with um, the visibility of coverage of the Vietnam War. I think that's kind of what, I mean, you had a very similar dynamic dynamic in at least the lead up to the Afghanistan war, because once, you know, 9-11 occurred and the... American public was kind of galvanized around this Neo-Orientalist image of the enemy Arab. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the boys were going overseas to lead the good fight. It was going to be a very difficult fight because it was a new type of fighting. Right. And um, and there was multiple stories, different stories every single night about them taking over enemy compounds. Um, there were no deaths reported, which... If if you ever see a story about about any military operation and they say that no deaths are reported, serious if you believe that, I would seriously reevaluate your your <laughs> uh, your conceptualization of what a truth claim is. I mean, they they have standard depletion reports, uh, estimates of uh, or troop depletion reports of how many troops they are expected to lose. And I guarantee you, on on a single report, there's never a goose egg. There just isn't. I mean, um, anyway, all this to say that that when Afghanistan occurred, yes, everybody was galvanized around it, um, very similarly to the Gulf War. And then once we start um, the Iraq War and all the counter evidence coming out saying that you know Iraq never had weapons of mass destruction, yes, they used chemical weapons on the Kurds several years back, but they're not in possession and who of did they get now. and who
0: did they most likely get those <laughs> chemical weapons well from? we saw the receipts so i mean trace the purse strings <laughs> bill hicks is one of my favorite comedians he he said talked about that in one of his stand up reviews. he's passed away now
2: yeah but now now all the evidence coming out against the iraq war was made very well known to the american public and now the hyper visibility of death in these wars becomes a real phenomenon <laughs> Um you know now I mean I'm not I'm not excusing I'm not trivializing the the deaths of the soldiers or anything what right. I'm saying is that the Iraq war from its from day 1 till present day has far fewer casualties and deaths than any other war in recent history. Mm-hmm. Now yes the nature of war has changed dramatically. It's more technologically advanced. You have less forces that are needed on the ground. We're not throwing wave after wave across no man's land anymore. It's a little bit more uniformed. But nonetheless, even with those variables, still uh, a war that has very few casualties and deaths reported.
1: Now, just to clarify, the video that they did release, WikiLeaks released, it may put it under a separate website called collateralmurder.com. That was the video that was released. They were working on the Grinai airstrike, and apparently um, one of the initial spokespeople, uh, a Daniel Jomscheitberg, I I probably... Jomscheitberg, I butchered that name badly, um, was accused by Assange of taking the video, deleting it, along with Thirty-five thousand other files when he left WikiLeaks in September two thousand ten. So, um, and even with reduced casualties, you still war as hell, unfortunately. And I've seen, I've seen people come, you know, who were over in Iraq, serving in Iraq, and. You get to know them long enough, and you can tell that it still affects them to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people with PTSD. Um, you know, you and one of the ways you can tell if somebody's a combat veteran is, you know, you can find out. Okay, they were in the military. They they saw maybe saw combat, but from there, they don't really
0: talk about it. Right, like, uh, I, know, I know a guy who was in the, the, the Gulf in the early 90s. And also, you know, some gritty, other gritty type of situations domestically. And I wouldn't dare ask him what he has seen. What he wants to tell me, I, I, will, I will listen, but I'm not going to sit there and ask somebody who's a combat veteran, what have you seen? I I think that's disrespectful. Well, I, I recall several years ago,
2: um, this probably back in two thousand five, two thousand six now. Um, CNN re- uh, ran kind of an expose on on the new veterans that are coming back from mm-hmm. Afghanistan and Iraq, and asking them questions that are clearly PTSD triggers. Mm-hmm. Uh, asking them about what they've seen and. <clears throat> Uh, I mean, you you get to hear some of the accounts, but nonetheless, um, you're we're we're trying to make it a dramatic and intriguing story that should be known to the public. And I don't I don't think there's a reason why people opt into joining into the military. Um, none of it is probably directly related to wanting to be in a war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so to ask some somebody who's a combat veteran because her unit was called up to go serve in Iraq and Afghanistan and then asking them PTSD trigger questions seems, I don't know. It's it
0: not completely unethical. It's really slimy. Well, yeah. I That's mean, a really
2: slimy thing to do. And as an American populace, we're now told that we should be constantly consuming violent material. And we're just glossing over... I
0: don't necessarily think we're, we're told that. I think it's... It's a backdrop in the culture certain people are susceptible to it and certain people are not I don't even necessarily see it as an as an issue either but that's just me
2: well I look at I look at violence not in terms of just like physical death like per right, se you're, like like, you're talking about you're talking
0: things like UFC and things like the like culture well, that no, celebrates well, and, and, and discursive violence
2: right I mean the omission of, of a face from the news because you want to just gloss over the fact that, yeah, there are some military personnel that lost their lives in Afghanistan. Uh, uh, okay. that, that, to me, speaks more about how we're just creating a culture of violence that, that allows for some deaths to be mourned while others are not. And mm-hmm. we have these various so, so, social and political reasons but as to why. But,
0: of course, you, you see that in the, in the civilian population, too. Uh, famous people, for instance. Celebrities. And you could have somebody maybe died in a similar manner, who's a you know quote unquote everyday Joe or Joe or Jane Doe, and it's not it's not revered as like a famous actor, or musician, or something. Um, let's see.
1: I have a bunch of tabs open right now, splitting between Snowden and <laughs> Manning Assange. I'm going nuts here, but... Uh, Don't guys.
0: ever admit that on the air. Well, <laughs> i That's with information in that sense,
1: but, um... But, yeah, we all know about CableGate. We all know about how WikiLeaks, what happened to WikiLeaks soon after, where they had to fight just to stay online, and SOPA and HIPAA, that start coming through shortly after that as well. And that initiative failed. But I want to kind of change gears here for a moment. Um I, I know we said we wouldn't mention the LGBT thing, but I would like to just for a moment. It's not the issue itself, I I think fighting for LGBT rights is I know because myself, but it's just the timing of that particular piece of what, what some would call "quote unquote" news, popping up practically a day or two after right, a sentence. Right. Exactly.
0: Then. Like, I
1: mean, does, does anybody else think that that's just
0: a little bit odd? Initial, sp- yes, very much so. Initially, I thought it was a parody. It's just like I'm I'm scrolling through my Facebook feed, and I'm thinking, is this is this an Onion story? Is this is this really going mm-hmm. on? And I
1: ran into comments from various, you know, websites, even like a local media venue, like you know NBC Action News One, mm-hmm. where people were like, "This isn't news," you know, and because now I'm noticing more people, a few more people than you know a few years ago, they're starting to notice this kind of more and more now. They're like. Wait. What about the fact that this guy was, or this girl, you know, this individual was sentenced to thirty-five years, uh, and they're practically going to be approaching, you know, not quite there, but approaching, you know, your retirement age. When that sentence is complete, what about the stuff that they had released? What about all
0: the things
2: that it entailed. I no, think. I think. You know, it's well, just. I think. I think that story just kind of magnifies how the American populace, to me, is almost incapable of, of uh, juxtaposing two political and social issues side by side and synthesizing them. Right. I mean, we have the issue of of Chelsea Manning uh, leaking information. Um, a lot of information about about specific U.S. combat missions, and then we have the L.G.B.T. rights dynamic. Uh, for all of you who are who are unfamiliar with Chelsea Manning, uh, Chelsea Manning, formerly known as Bradley Manning, after the sentencing, uh, within a day or two after the sentencing hearing, Chelsea Manning um, said that she identifies um, as as a female, change, well, as wanting to change her name from uh, Bradley Manning to Chelsea Manning in her uh, federal papers. Um, because of U.S. statute right now, all of her papers will say Bradley Manning. Um, and be, also because of U.S. statute with regards to federal prisons, um, she will not be able to get access to uh, gender realignment surgery or hormone therapy in order to complete her transition while she is serving her 35-year prison sentence. And so, to me, when that, when that story was posted, I, I, I hear all, all of these different narratives saying, like, like this isn't news. Her tra- desire to transition isn't news. Or, alternatively, um, they equate Chelsea Manning's desire to transition, or at least juxtaposing her desire to transition, with criminality, which exposes an entirely different negative dynamic altogether, right? Because now we're criminalizing an LGBT identity that speaks outside of gender normative behavior. Um, it, it frustrates me a lot because what it exposes is, um, I guess, the massive web of, um, of criminality that we've kind of blanketed over People who are uh, who we label as whistleblowers, or people who just want to reveal some of the actual happenings of what's happening in the international community, um, and also it's frustrating because we can't have a civil discourse about LGBT rights in the United States without appealing to victimhood rhetoric or appealing to criminal uh, criminalization and pathology rhetoric to describe particular identities and particular subgroups.
1: you um, you. Mm, mm, mm. Taken a, a media an analyst analysis class, correct?
2: Right. Well, media analysis is my is my focus in uh, um, my masters.
1: And this this if, if one wants to call it a story, this announcement was made on a Thursday, and you said something to me about what happens when something is published on a
2: Thursday. Right. When um, there there have been a myriad of different. Uh, scholarly studies that have been published about the timing of news events. Um, all the, all these decisions that are made by news organizations just don't happen in a vacuum, right? They are selected. They are discussed amongst news staffers and editors. The, the news uh, staff and, and editors make decisions as to what to class, what to qualify a news story as. There are journalistic norms, which are Attitudes and beliefs as to what qualifies the story, how it should be written, what to include, what to exclude. These are all um, attitudes and behaviors associated in journalism. And um, there have been some, there have been quite a few uh, studies coming out that said the time when you post or publish a story often determines not only the direction of the public agenda or the public discourse around a specific issue, right. but also its ability to ga- uh, garner national salience. Typically, stories that are posted on a weekend, if it's already part, if, it, if the story's already part of a larger network of stories, then it might get kind of incorporated into the fold, but largely kind of ignored, right? Because it doesn't quite mesh up with what the dominant rhetoric on the story is, and so we just kind of, without really even thinking about it, disassociate it from what should be the primary focus of the story, and that is the leaking of federal government documents.
1: So if, if if the idea is to get it into as much of the public conscience as possible, have it published on a Monday.
2: Or at least have it published as its own separate story, right? I mean, if you're going to engage in a story about LGBT rights in the United States, if you're going to engage in discourse about federal and state statute with regards to hormonal therapy and specific nuanced subjects like that, Post them as a, and publish them as an expose on that specific issue, as opposed to trying to. I think very very lazily starting to associate an LGBT identity with criminality because it's only after, only after the sentencing hearing, do we have this revelation that Chelsea Manning wants to transition from being born biologically male to uh, becoming a female. Only after the sentencing story, so we already kind of. Uh, cognitively associate criminality with Bradley Chelsea Manning as a person and then um, and then we go from criminality to this revelation of her new and uh, desired gender identity which is to be known as Chelsea Manning so it creates kind of a, a shortcut in identifying, associating and then judging Chelsea Manning yeah. Um Oh, I'm sorry. Go, go on.
1: <laughs> and not not to mention, you, you specifically, if something is published on a Thursday, what typically
2: is happening here? Um. Well, like I already said, if it's if it's published on like a with a like a, as a part of like a running expose, it's usually it's usually thought of by the Ameri- uh, by the populace by the readers of media as just being kind of a detail. Amongst all the other details in a story, now if um, if you know we let off on Monday with a story about Chelsea's main desire to transition from uh, male to female, and then talked about the criminality, suddenly LGBT rights garners national salience even more. Now I think part of the reason why the story did break is because. We're living in a post-DOMA society. I mean, it was only a couple of months ago that DOMA was struck down by the Supreme Court. Um, Proposition 8, uh, the Supreme Court didn't make a decision on Prop 8. They just kind of deferred judgment on that to the lower court's decision. Um, So that's why I think right now it's, I guess, politically expedient to include coverage about the LGBT rights dynamic with Chelsea Manning. Um, But nonetheless, I think the media is still glossing over a lot of details with regards to people's desire to transition, uh, the the myriad of different um, statutes and limitations associated with occupying a gender identity within the criminal justice system, whether it's on the local, state, or federal level, and then in turn glossing over how we are constructing their identity in the media.
1: Very well put. Um, It's just the the timing and everything else it, that's what caught me suspicious and one of the one of the things that people you know how this individual was discovered was they had talked to somebody online and then the, this person just kind of ratted them out and Manning was eventually arrested um Snowden's story is a little bit different though um it's Snowden was you know, switching gears to something a little bit more different because one of the apparatus of military and defense is intelligence, um, information, and one of the ways to gather information is spying, gathering stuff from phone calls, emails, and what have you, and other forms of data. And sometimes you have to have third parties, i.e., government contractors, kind of process a lot of information for you. So one and Bruce Allen Hamilton was is one of these groups, and Edward Snowden worked for one of these, one of these set groups. I remember the story first coming out about Snowden uh, after the whole meme popped up of the Verizon share-everything plan, which... <laughs> when, when they say share-everything, I don't think that's what people had in mind,
2: but... No, but they'd be happy to certainly grandfather all those uh, NSA privileges into their contract. <laughs> oh, oh
1: <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, so what happened? Washington Post published something regarding... Uh, telecom companies basically and other companies like microsoft saying oh these guys collect data on behalf of the nsa and then instead of instead of basically trying to remain anonymous and unidentified the person came forward in their own way and said i'm the person that did it and here's why um Glenn Greenwald interviewed him for The Guardian. Other people were involved in that small media project, and that'll be linked on the website as well, uh, video and all. Um, What are your thoughts on
0: Snowden, first of all? More so than just Snowden, one of the things that it it triggers to me or makes me think about is um, the role of, of the NSA, and to think about, we suppose there's some songs I was listening to years ago, so <coughs> oh, like to Tell All Society. And to think about, you know, if you look at, you know, extending from the Patriot Act, and you have wire warrantless wiretaps, that's a violation of the Fourth Amendment. Right. And then to think about, well, that's sort of a, a paradigm shift. And to think about, well, because you get you get sort of a, a stark reaction to. The, the intrusion of the NSA and these other programs. On one hand, you have people who are basically like, no, this is unconstitutional, this is illegal. On the other end of the spectrum, what's the big deal? You know, if you're not doing anything wrong, you shouldn't have anything to worry about. And we share so much stuff online anyway. So I'm thinking about on, on a cultural level, and on a social implication, because through Facebook, through Twitter, through WordPress, through whatever, that uh, people grab grab attention for whatever reason online. like, right. People are already know this about me and know that. So, is it really a big deal that somebody knows this other information through backdoor channels? do uh, yeah, I
2: mean, I mean, I yeah, I mean, we share so much of our lives and spend it otherwise <laughs> online. We share political <laughs> views online. We share our sympathies towards particular groups online. Um. And, uh, I mean, some people, like you would say, would say, you know what? I have nothing, absolutely nothing. No, I know. Know. thing is,
0: I did not, that is not my position. I was just I saying know. that you have people who have that Right, position. yeah, you
2: have, I mean, it's kind of a naive uh, conceptualization, right? I mean, like, you don't get to determine whether you are, what you're posting is classified as a threat by a government agency. right. Government agency gets to determine vis-a-vis the the laws that are already are already statute. Um, they get to decide, you know, the what is acceptable uh, and appropriate social and political behavior.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and an interesting side note, one of the one of the books that an individual named Stephen Levy, um, he's the guy author behind Hackers: Heroes of the Computer Revolution, um, covering just Bill Gates to um, Richard Stallman, uh, he authored a book called Crypto. And were it not for rebellious individuals um, basically pushing back against the NSA, um, your online banking, we wouldn't have any commercial encryption at all. Um, back in the day, the NSA wanted to be the only ones with any sort of encryption. At all, and and that's the thing that I find very very interesting. What happened with uh, Snowden? He used a secure email service that eventually shut down because the NSA came knocking on their door. Um, it also caused another website, Groklaw, to just shut their doors. They were the site that was giving you know legal analysis regarding uh, Microsoft. In certain cases, and everything else, and recently Apple and Samsung regarding patents, and they, um, the person that went under the pseudonym Pamela Jones, just closed the doors, basically saying, uh, with all this happening, I can't escape from this. People send me stuff through email, so clearly what Snowden has been had done basically. Kind of impacted the entire world through all of that um, like what are your thoughts on that in general? How much of an impact do you think his
2: actions are having right now well it's certainly complicating u s foreign policy in Latin America and with Russia I mean we have nation I mean Ecuador Venezuela and, a, and, and there was another country in Latin America who all said that they would at least grant. Snowden temporary asylum, if not full asylum asylum. And uh, Russia has given temporary asylum to Snowden. Um
0: which I actually find to be a quite uh a contradiction. You know, the, for to right. take to take asylum in a country that has uh one of the, the worst, worst track records for prosecuting journalists. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I it might be any port in a storm, I guess. That's uh, if if I was in his shoes, I would. China and Russia would not be on my list of countries to go to seek asylum. From. Right. right.
2: Um, what it what it is doing though, it, it's definitely shaking up U.S. Uh, <coughs> diplomatic relations with Latin American countries, and yeah, a lot of these countries, you know, the United States has classified these countries as rogue countries in the past, and varying different administrations but I think um, the U.S.-Russia dynamic is probably the most problematic at this point considering that, I mean, the United States made quite significant progress under Dmitry Medvedev with uh, like bilateral cooperation on anti-terrorism, on weapons of mass destruction, on uh, small arms proliferation, specifically in the Middle East and Eastern Europe, and then now with Vladimir Putin back in power, and we have United States and Russia under Vladimir Putin have never really kind of coalesced mm-hmm. on many bilateral fronts. But now we have basically the the rolling back of all the progression made in U.S.-Russian relations over the last five years because of the Snowden issue. Um, and, I mean, Russia has already said that they're not going to give Snowden back to the United States if the United States asks. They, I mean, they just flat out said no. Uh, um but i think I think what's interesting is that snowden Snowden obviously leaked a lot of information about surveillance efforts of uh, what the United States is doing on a, on mostly on the domestic front there's some there's some implication to what how the United States is using intelligence in the international community that was implicated with snowden's leaking um, but I think what is really problematic about how the United States is handling Snowden is that with all these NSA revelations about, you know, NSA, uh, not, not targeting uh, but surveilling, uh, you know, tens of millions of Americans for what seems to be no real warrant whatsoever it's just kind of labeling everybody as a potential threat. Now, on a, on a on a social dynamic level, on a political dimension um, level, it just seems like the war on terror has now literally no boundaries in terms of prosecuting everybody who has even somewhat of a connection
0: to... One thing, if I was just sort of, you know, pick both your brains on this issue, how much of the populace would you uh, think that, you know, we're over 10 years past 9-11? And how much of the populace do you think, well, you know, th- this is what we have to sacrifice to get the tariffs, and how many people... Think I don't like the idea of constitutional rights being violated. I don't like the idea of I think the Fourth the vast, Amendment being. I think the vast violated. majority
2: of the American populace now speaks very strongly against the United States' prosecution on the war on terrorism.
0: There is. I'm talking about specifically as far as the NSA and and what what is extended from the Patriot Act as far as survey, domestic surveillance. Who do you uh, what? what which voice do you think is the dominant voice for this from the populace the, pro or con uh, the people who are
2: against the NSA surveillance efforts i mean there is na- there was national outcry to expose the NSA after after snowden initially exposed the, uh the NSA there was a massive national public outcry to get senate hearings as to the the depth and breadth of NSA surveillance efforts, the companies that they asked to give up information, the types of information the NSA was trying to gather, how they were using that information. I I recall there was one specific Senate hearing where um, senior NSA officials were asked explicit uh, questions as to what terrorist plots that they were able to... um, to mitigate as a result of the information that they gathered. And they're like, oh, we've we've uh, we've taken out at least 50. And, and there was one senator from uh, now that I have to recall it, I keep misplacing where he's actually from. And he said, okay, well, we'll be happy to uh, uh, see all that information as to what specific terror plots, when, how many people were affected. We'll be happy to see that information when you guys give it to us in a week he's like, what? what? <laughs> and, and and then they came out a couple of days later and said, oh, there are these two or three that we did. But all, all this other information is national top secret national security, um, uh, top secret, um, so you can't have it. We can't oh. expose it.
1: <laughs> now, to offer the other side of this particular coin, I have run into at least one person who... Who seemed to be like he, he didn't care really, but it's one of the um, things that they had said you know, when I pointed out the Fourth Amendment was well, they're not really taking anything. They're not really seizing
0: anything. They're
2: gathering metadata that can't really be pinpointed to anybody. It's just here is raw data on the communication patterns of people in this city and this city
1: and and their whole thing is you're not going to stop it anyway and and that's something that I've kind of run into as well you're not going to stop it and and the one thing that was not taken into account was the ninth amendment which specifically states that just because it does not say specifically that you have this right, does not, not, doesn't mean you do not have that right. Um, and when that was passed in the Bill of Rights, it was more than likely intended to let people know that they needed to use their brains a little bit. And, for example, privacy, you know, you have a right to be left alone if you want to be left alone, if you're not hurting anybody, that sort of thing. And,
2: So,
1: um... Basically, um...
2: You're, you're... You're... Well... How... You said you... How many people just believe that... I... Because to me, when... When somebody makes the argument that... And it's almost the argument from ignorance that... You can't... You can't, um... I guess, correct some of the stuff that's happening. Like, you... Like, you as an individual voice can't create enough fissure within the power dynamics of your culture um, to make room for alternative voices, that to me just says, okay, fine, we'll just absolutely see the political to the same apparatuses that that are oppressing you in in various forms. It just seems to me kind of either naive, myopic, or just downright ignorant of the fact that if you just, I mean, if you expose the NSA or if you expose the federal government for what it's doing it doesn't have to be the federal government it can be any any apparatus that tries to seek and consolidate power um, if you speak against it and you have enough people listening and enough people believing that they cannot do this then inevitably what happens is that there's pressure on that entity to change its ways and I think that's what why our the national rhetoric has heightened over the last you know week uh to two weeks is because now we're starting to finally, I guess, get all these thousands of pieces to this puzzle that has been, uh, that has been made over the last you know, 13, 14 years. We're trying to piece them together so we can actually galvanize to create a counter-movement that speaks directly against this type of authority and undermining civil liberties. This is not to say, of course, that it, that, that contesting these boundaries is going to be A, significant or be powerful enough to uh, have any form of government reconceptualize its role in regards to protecting the people, but at least it creates an expectation that these government entities can have carte blanche authority to do whatever they so please in the name of what they perceive to be national security.
1: And one of the impacts that I've noted and others have noted is um, Justin Amash recently trying to pass legislation to have a significant impact on the NSA and it nearly succeeding
0: what, what was in the legislation
1: defunding the NSA if memory serves or at least reigning them in
0: um, Who was this? Who is Justin this? Amash.
1: He tried to get...
0: He tried to do something do regarding you, the... S- do you think, well, if Zach was talking about public outcry as opposed... in, in response to these leaks, and you're talking about proposed legislation to defund the NSA, then I have to ask again, do you you think we could see a day in which through populist pressure on government or some type of populist movement that uh, collection of metadata or warrantless wiretaps or the NSA as as an entity no longer exists? Is that possible or viable?
2: Oh. It's a possible... I mean, I guess everything... Is, I mean, There's uh, a difference between possible and probable. Right. Is it possible... Yeah, it is very well could be possible. I mean, we've had... Uh, uh, it seems like day after day after day, we see different uh, protest communities propping up, speaking directly against NSA efforts, uh, surveilling efforts, and um, a lot of pressure on our elected representatives to bring this issue to the uh, to the floors of Congress, um, is it probable that the NSA uh, could get the, even partially defunded? Uh, I don't know. I like to believe that, it, that it's actually pretty close. I mean, it the most recent legislation that posed the question of partially defunding the NSA narrowly escaped being passed. Um, now, you know, a lot of that is elected representatives pounding their chest in preparation for the midterm elections. And it's just political expedience at this point. You know, if we're talking two years from now, when you know they've already secured their spots, it's going to be a different answer probably. Um, but at least within the conservative community, there—I—I've already kind of sensed that there's—I uh, mean—in the liberal community, it's happening as well. But certainly in the conservative uh, movement, you have. Um, you have uh, the Tea Party and um, more civil liberty oriented conservative groups who are saying we need to defund the NSA and then you have the more moderate groups or what would be fairly conservative let's say 15 years ago who are supporting the NSA surveillance efforts as a part of continuing the war on terrorism and you're having this fissure within political parties. I
0: think that's that's, uh, emblematic of the Libertarian-slash-traditional the, libertarian, the libertarian slash traditional conservative schism that goes on in the Republican Party, or that's gone on if you look at the sort of war of words between Chris Christie and Rand Paul. As an example, but you hit on an, an important issue. You highlight uh, that uh, this issue alone, I think, has, the, has a, a potential to sort of uh, create a greater synergy between the left and the right, because if if, if the constitution and constitutional laws set up the basic ground rules of uh, of our of our government of our representative democracy, that's not a left or right wing issue. No. That affects citizens and elected representatives regardless of where they stand on the aisle. And I think re- resistance to that has an ability to. Uh, to get people on the right and the left to sort of put aside their differences and work together on this. Right, and
2: we're also speaking at a time that, you know, it's, it's let's see, I mean, we're 12 years into the full out prosecution of the war on terrorism, um, at least, you know, post-9-11 war on terrorism, and you have a lot of different reasons that cross both sides of the aisle as to why this is not a war, it's certainly a war worth fighting, but it, because after all, we want to protect our citizens in every way that we can. But it's not a winnable one in which you know, I mean the United States has, probably has at least somewhat good intentions of trying to bring terrorist organizations to justice, but at the same time, you know uses um, drone strikes in Afghanistan and Pakistan and kills, you know, a couple hundred civilians at a time, and now we've created a new batch of enemies to fight five, ten years from now. You have a lot of people who, who are, at this point, exhausted of the war on terrorism. So, effort, international effort that we're dumping billions of dollars into, and for what doesn't seem like a whole lot of demonstrable results, at least on face.
1: And I'm starting to notice, in addition to more and more people starting to take a step back and look at, what's been going on, and asking themselves, okay, do we really, really need all this information archived? Um, And as, you know, Snowden had basically said, you know, even if you've done nothing wrong, everything's archived. Um, And basically the government has been wrong before in going after certain people if you, for some reason, are suspected of anything, um, they can scrutinize every decision you've ever made in your life, and they can twist it in any way they can to make to make you look as guilty as
2: possible. Right. And I think I think you're highlighting a a broader dynamic here. It's the dynamic under the war on terrorism that we've kind of. Over a course of 12 years started erasing the, the, the definitive the definitional limits of what we constitute as a threat suddenly instead of the threat being the people and the terrorist organization uh, or organizations that carried out multiple terrorist attacks you know in, in New York and um, and you know in parts of northern uh, eastern Africa especially in the Horn of Africa the Middle East suddenly we're now erasing those definitional limits of what we say is a threat and now suddenly everybody in our population can be conceived of as a potential threat I think on a philosophical level on on, on a media analyst level that's a dynamic that is extremely extremely dangerous because just, when you label everybody as a threat then the erosion of civil liberties is basically what will ensue I mean you have if everybody is a threat, and if everybody um, has the ability to commit these acts of terrorism, and if our recent history is any in indication as to how we treat these people, it's hold them without, with very, very loose and circumstantial evidence um, of their guiltiness and deny them trial. Basically, the erosion of civil liberties. How do we contest this as a, either as a micro-political community? How do we contest it as a population? I think it through the efforts of, of of creating these protests that speak directly against NSA surveillance efforts. That's good. I think what will happen is probably that either an organization or maybe one person um, was falsely accused based off of NSA uh, surveillance data and was held either with or without uh, probable cause, and then they go into the the federal government um, at least to at least to get some format of a hearing mm-hmm. on these. I think only until then you will actually have kind of a, a dramatic shift like we had with the issue of DOMA um, comes to the collective forefront and the federal government will have to now reconcile what it has been doing with what the populace wants.
1: And with more people starting to look at situations like Syria and asking wait Why in the world should we even get involved at all? What are we doing? And protesting and demonstrating and causing, in effect, the 2012 uh, National Defense Authorization Act. There are specific um, parts of that where, if it's broadly interpreted, you can be held as an enemy combatant, basically, you know we're running into that issue as well, which is why these two topics were melded together in a sense. Which is why we're kind of <laughs> we're kind of way over. Oh, only by about four minutes, maybe. <laughs> um, more than that after everything else is thrown in. But I think we'll go ahead and wrap it up. And um, basically, next time for those who are privacy conscience. There are some tools out there uh, from entire applications to entire operating systems that can be put onto a USB thumb drive to where you can at least have some privacy or at least bypass uh, censorship, if you will, depending on what country you're in. Um, We are on thenextreport.com where all our social networking links are at the top. Um, entertain yourself, educate yourself, empower yourself, and we will see you next week. Why should people care about surveillance? Because even if you're not doing anything wrong, you're being watched and recorded. And the the storage capability of these systems increases every year consistently by orders of magnitude uh, to where it's getting to the point you don't have to have done anything wrong. You simply have to eventually fall under suspicion from somebody, even by a wrong call. And then they can use the system to go back in time and scrutinize every decision you've ever made, every friend you've ever discussed something with, and attack you on that basis to sort of derive suspicion from an innocent life and paint anyone in the context of a wrongdoer. Thanks for listening to our podcast. The intro music to this episode is from JT Bruce's Plunge into Hyper-Reality, a part of the album Dreamer's Paradox, available on gemendo.com under Creative Commons. Feel free to check us out on thenextreport.com We have show notes for each episode, discussion forums, our digital magazine, and more. We are on Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or Tumblr, all linked at the top of our website. Want to leave us feedback, follow us on the social networks that are linked at the top of our website, or call into the show at 660-474-0345, leave a message and your voice may be heard on an upcoming episode of the podcast. Again, thanks for checking out the podcast itself and our website. It's listeners
2: like you and people like you that keep us going. Thank you so much.